and statements expressed in the following program do not necessarily reflect those of WWDB, its staff, or management. Inspirational women are increasingly popular in the news and media, but many go unheard and their stories are never told. Women to Watch with Susan Rocco captures the stories of many women who truly make a difference. Women to Watch is the vehicle for developing new leaders, encouraging younger generations, and in building self-esteem for future entrepreneurs. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome back to another week of Women to Watch here on WWDB Talk 860 and womentowatch.net. Uh, I'm thrilled this afternoon to be outside of my studio. I'm actually doing a remote uh, this week from the beautiful Idea Farm at SEI on their campus. And uh, we're going to be uh, filming and doing an interview in front of a live audience. You can give yourselves a hand this afternoon. And uh, before we get started, I just want the listeners to know you can uh, tune in to 104.9 as well. We're going to be uh, broadcasting there in addition to 860 AM. And as always, please visit uh, womentowatch.net. That's women, the number two, watch.net for all things related to the show. And I'm going to get started right away with my very special guest this afternoon. Uh, her name is Sandy Ewing, and Sandy is the Senior Vice President of SEI and Head of SEI's Trust 3000. Sandy, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. We're finally here. I know that you and I connected uh, about a month or so ago, and, and we did a little pre-interview, and I learned um, a little bit about your up bringing, which I think is unique in that you um, actually were born in uh, Wisconsin, Prescott, and born and raised on a 160-acre dairy farm. So I'd love for you to talk for a few minutes about uh, that, that experience growing up on a farm. We all know when you, when you do that, you're usually working very hard and helping out with family chores. Um, but just talk for a few minutes about those years and, and okay. how it helped shape your uh, role today. Well, Prescott, Wisconsin is a small community that is only about 30 minutes from St. Paul, Minnesota, but a very small community. My um, graduating class in high school was 89 students. Um, and growing up on the farm, we, we never really went without. I, don't, I never felt poor or um, that I didn't have the things that I needed, but Every day there were things that needed to be done, and it was expected as part of, you know, being part of the family. Um, we had chores, whether they were barn chores, um, chores with the animals, gardening, canning, cleaning. Um, and it's just, it's amazing how much our world has changed in the last 40 years and how there's so much automation today that didn't exist back then. Um, but it was absolutely an environment where and we worked every day, but we also had a lot of fun, and I enjoyed being outside, which was, you know, a big part of my childhood. Um, one of the things that I know from, from my research is that you had a, a very special relationship with your mom, and I wanted to read a, a quote, um, something that was always um, a message from your mother. She said, if you're going to do a job, do it well or not at all. Um, and that has stayed with you. Was there pressure? Did, was there a pressure there to, to kind of do things in a perfect way, or 
Absolutely. So, um, you know, whether it was vacuuming or scrubbing the floor or picking raspberries, um, I felt like my mother said that phrase to me at least twice a day, if not more often. I mean, as a, as a child, we all would rather be doing other things. Um, but my mom just drilled that into my head. And as an adult, when I look back, it really did help kind of define who I became in that every task that I tackle, I think about giving it my all. Um, now, over the years, I've learned to balance perfection with good enough because there are certain tasks and activities that absolutely require perfection. And there are other things where uh, you just have to accept the fact that they don't need to be perfect and mm -hmm. it's, a, it's not a good use of your time or other people's time to um, put too much effort into them. Right. Um, so I had, you know, I, I was a perfectionist by nature and mm -hmm. my mom's mantra probably helped contribute to that. Um, but I've learned to kind of balance perfection with good enough over the years. That's great, yeah. Do you feel that growing up um, not privileged um, had a bearing on who you are today and, and your leadership style? Absolutely. Um, you know, there, I still derive great value out of knowing that I did my best and um, you know, I think growing up not privileged made me realize that nothing in life is free, that you have to work very, very hard for everything that you want and everything that you aspire to be. Um, so, you know, looking back, I think it was great that, you know, from my earliest age, both working at home to, you know, working in the school cafeteria in middle school and babysitting and, you know, work throughout high school um, at a restaurant. I think those were all great experiences and things that prepared me to go into the business world. Now, <clears throat> excuse me, your mom, running a farm is a lot of work. It's hard, right? It's getting up at the crack of dawn, making sure, you know, everything is accomplished uh, from morning till the sun goes down. And um, I wonder if you suspect that your mom had some aspirations beyond running the farm and if she ever shared that with you. You know, my mom absolutely um, was committed to her family and her children and, and to running the farm. So I think about the business of the farm and my mom ran the business. My dad did a lot of the labor, not to say that my mom didn't, because I can you know, remember her bailing hay and helping with those chores as well. Um, but as I got older, it became very obvious that she did all of the accounting work, um, a lot of the strategy work, um, what investments they needed to make, and, and okay. how they you know, ultimately were successful. So. Um, you know, my mom taught me the importance of working hard, but also um, the basics of, of accounting. You know, I, I, I think I shared with you when we spoke that when I started babysitting, she helped me set up ledgers so that I could keep track of how much money I made by month, but also how much money I made by family. You know, 
overkill. I mean, absolute <laughs> overkill when you think about it. But it really helped me understand the importance of understanding where I was working, what I was doing, who paid me what. Um, and those are all you know, kind of the basic insights into accounting, um, which is a big part of how I started in, in business. Yeah. Look at that. I mean, really, for your mom to have that foresight um, to do that, um, you know, she was kind of ahead of her time. We talk on the show always about the importance of teaching young people and, and children in particular about money in addition to math, mm -hmm, right, learning mm -hmm. math. Um, so that they do have a, you know, a sense of, of saving and investing and planning for the future. So I think that's really wonderful that your mom was thinking about that. And, and for a woman who never worked outside the home from a business perspective, right. I still remember when I got my first job at the bank. Um, she took me shopping and she, you know, she said, you need to dress for the job you want to have, not necessarily the job you have. And so, I, you know, Lots of things that she constantly coached and guided me on. Yeah. What was your relationship with your dad? Um, hmm. um, you know, I, I think all daughters want um, their to be in their dad's eye, right? And so I would, I, I would love it when I would be the one who got to go out on the tractor with him and, and help with the field work and, and spend that one-on-one -on -one time with him. Mm -hmm. um, being one of, of four. Um, I probably spent more time in the house, and the other three t tended to spend more time in the barn. I'm not sure why, other than the fact that I was the oldest girl and my mom kind of snatched me. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that was very good for me. Yeah. Um, you were incredibly busy and involved and did a lot of activities in school. Um, you were in the marching band, you were in the jazz band, you were in forensics on student council, and you graduated at the top of your class. Um, and then you also worked 25 hours a week while you were going to school. Um, did you feel pressure to excel, or were you someone that really thrived um, on the excitement of being involved in competing? Um, I was absolutely someone who thrived on competing. Okay. And still to this day, I love the, the challenge that comes with a competition. I've learned for me, that it's less about winning and knowing, and more about knowing that I did my best. Um, I've also, as a professional, learned that you, somebody else doesn't have to lose in order for you to win, mm -hmm. especially in a company like SEI, where we're parts of teams and we're supporting clients. Um, if the person sitting next to me is successful, that's good for the company. Mm -hmm. um, it's good if we all win. We need more strong talent, not less. And so I think there's lots of opportunities for people that are willing to do whatever needs to be done. And um, that, to me, is, is the spirit of competition, doing, doing our best. Yeah. I think that's a gr great message for, for women and girls as well. I think that they tend to um, feel that wanting to be competitive or wanting to win is somehow a negative thing, right? And if the outcome is, is for positive reasons, um, then it is a good thing, right? right? It keeps you motivated. I think, I think competition can you know, be that spark that makes you passionate about something, and we all need passion. Yeah. Um, that's in passion leads to high energy, and high energy leads to results. Yeah. Talk to me a little bit about your your teachers who, in high school, saw something in you um, and came to you and and kind of guided you. Um, 
for your career. Your, your family was not able to financially afford to send you to college, so you had to kind of come up with a plan upon graduation. Um, tell me about that, the conversations you had with some of your counselors and teachers. Uh, so it's interesting, especially me sitting here today, because when I was in high school, um, my chosen path would have been to go into broadcasting and journalism. Mm -hmm. um, very much loved public speaking, um, interacting with others, um, but ultimately um, it, it did come down to a financial situation where um, it would have been very difficult for my family to support me going to college. Um, and I had um, taken a lot of elective courses in high school from both an accounting perspective and what at that time we would have called office practice perspective. And one of the teachers encouraged me to apply for a couple of, at, at a couple of organizations in the Twin Cities. Um, as I mentioned before, we were like 30 miles from St. Paul, Minnesota. Um, so I applied um, at an insurance company and also at um, the trust department of a large bank and um, got, was offered a role at um, the trust department in, in, at First Trust, which was part of First Bank Systems at the time, mm -hmm. um, now part of the U.S. bank conglomerate. Um, and it, it was a great opportunity for me. And when I started out, it was really to... Basically, my plan was to work for a couple of years, save enough money so that I could quit and go to college full time. And what I learned is that the bank was more than happy to pay for me to take courses at night and on weekends. And what I saw um, is that my job was slowly transforming and evolving and I was being given opportunities and different responsibilities. And so I made the decision to just continue to go to school at night and um, give 100% to my job every day, and that's what I did. Would you say that you were, that, that the, your colleagues and, and the employers were recognizing something in you and giving you opportunities, or were you kind of raising your hand and saying, you know, I can do that? I think it was a combination of both. So, you know, I, it's interesting um, having worked at, um, a restaurant supper club throughout high school. You know, I was on my feet all the time, um, hot, tired, exhausted at the end of the day. Um, and I was surprised that I could spend, you know, nine hours in the office and, and not be dead at the end of the day. Um, and so, you know, early on, I would... Um, basically offer to help anyone that needed help. If I had capacity, the last thing I wanted to do would be sit there twiddling my thumbs because the day would go by very slowly. Mm -hmm. So I offered to help people, and within a few months, um, there were people actually coming to me asking if I could take on additional things. And, you know, some of it's timing. Um, about six months after I started at the firm, um, we, in, as a firm, invested in some new technology for both our employee benefit participant record-keeping business, but also, you know, word processing enterprise for the whole group. Mm -hmm. And um, I was tapped um, to help um, build out some of, you know, those early processes and sent to um, the company. It was a company called Wang who had word processing and microcomputers at the time. 
and you know learned how to you know program and um, maintain a lot of the equipment and kind of evolved. It came naturally yeah, to you. It did. Yeah. Did, at that time, were you um, one of few women? No, working? you know, I actually, I was not. Okay. So when I joined the bank in 1981, um, there were probably as many, perhaps more women in the operations group than there were men. Okay. Now, most of the senior leaders were men, but not all. I mean, I worked for a woman. Um, when, I, when I look back, my eight years at First Trust, I actually, I think I worked for more women than I worked for men. Is that unusual to, for that time and in that field? I think it's unusual for there to have been very senior women. Right. But there absolutely were a lot of middle management mm -hmm. women at that time. Mm -hmm. And if I look at the officer trainee program that the bank had in place, um, where, you know, basically as they hired um, kids right out of college, they would put them into the officer training program. Um, and quite frankly, it's amazing to me, but there were as many women in the program as there were men. Hmm. Um, I mentioned just a few minutes ago that you really were someone that was constantly juggling a lot of things. And, and this is not a very creative question. I don't like to talk about time management, but I would like to know what your philosophy is for getting through the day with the amount of tasks that you had actually throughout your career um, and in today's world, where we really just have so much coming at us, it's, it's very often information overload. What it, everyone has kind of a different philosophy for, for managing that and getting through it. What is yours? What works for you? So one, I would say that that has evolved over the last 35 years. Mm -hmm. As technology has evolved, the way I've managed and, and tracked my life, if you will, has also evolved. Um, I s still tend to keep a lot of handwritten lists because I find that easier for my brain to comprehend than maintaining a task list in Outlook or some other technology. Right. Um, it becomes more of a task to update the task list in that scenario right. versus my scribbles. Right. Um, but I think Every role I've had requires an adjustment to how I manage my life. So my first 10 years at SEI, um, I was a relationship manager, and I was on the road probably three weeks out of every four and maximized my time sitting on airplanes mm. um, to both um, prepare for meetings and calls but also to get myself organized. I also, we can all feel overwhelmed. There is a ton of information that mm -hmm. is always coming at us. Um, whether that's you know, new information from an industry perspective, a technology perspective, or it's information coming in from our staff, mm -hmm. information coming in from our clients. Our kids. Uh, our kids, <laughs> exactly. Um, and, and so for me, when I get overwhelmed, I take a step back and look at that list, adjust that list, and, and prioritize. What are those things, to my earlier point, that require 110%? 
and which of those activities are things that I just need to check the box, get off the list, do them well, mm -hmm. but they don't need to look perfect. Right. They just need to be done and done well. Do you find, are you saying that to yourself and, you know, getting back to this perfection thing, or are you really doing it? Um, do you find yourself slipping back and putting too many expectations on um, yourself? You know, it, it's interesting. My daughter will be 12 on Sunday, and <clears throat> my daughter forced balance into my life. She had no idea, she, I had no idea she was going to do that, but um, I still have workaholic tendencies, mm -hmm. but I am nothing like I was in the pre-child era. Um, because you have to dis, you, you have to set your priorities and you have to fit in both time for your family as well as time for work. Um, and it, I had a coach at SEI for a number of years who used to tell me, perfection is the enemy of good enough. And frankly, I didn't, as he would say that to me, I struggled with it because in my had no, if something needs perfection, it needs perfection. And what I realized after having my daughter was what I shared earlier, not everything requires perfection. And although he was saying perfection is the enemy of good enough, what he was really saying is no when a task requires good enough and no when a task requires perfection. Do you talk about these kinds of things with your daughter? Oh, yes, because yeah. she is a perfectionist oh, on no. steroids. <laughs> and she she's is, she's listening you. to this is not going to be happy that I just mentioned her. <laughs> um. <laughs> right. I mean, you know, I have a daughter as well. And I think it's so important, the, the conversations that we have with our daughters. And I think uh, there's a lot of young women in this room today. And I think it's hard for them. Um, harder than it was for us to maneuver our lives and figure out who we're going to be and what we're going to do. Um, there's a lot of pressure. There is that pressure for perfection, and there is no such thing. So if you had an opportunity to sit with a young woman who is perhaps you know, working for your company, and, and she was just kind of struggling with her own personal development, not necessarily you know, her next move for her career, what would you say to her to help her kind of stay focused and not, you know, be sidetracked by all the noise as mm. I describe it? I think one of the most important things for any of us when we think about our career is not to pick a path and focus so much on that single path that we miss opportunities along the way. Mm. Um, you know, if, if someone believes that success looks like this, they may pass up an opportunity that they never even contemplated that is a better path for them. Mm, yeah. So I always encourage people to take advantage of opportunities and learn as much as you can from that opportunity because every opportunity and the experience that comes from us from it gives us additional skills and those additional skills make us qualified for additional opportunities and as you continue to kind of follow that opportunities add skills skills give us make us qualified for more opportunities our value grows 
because we are capable of doing more and different things. And I encourage people to step outside their comfort zone and try something different. Mm -hmm. um, I believe if you do that and you keep your, your eyes open, when you hit intersections in the road, you'll make a conscious decision about, do I go straight ahead and continue down the path I was headed? Or do I veer left or right? Um, the other thing I say is, and once you pick a path, you can't look back because you will never know how it would have played out if you had turned left instead of right. I mean, for me, um, you know, in the 80s when I was working in St. Paul, I, I thought I would probably be there for life. And then an opportunity presented itself that I would have never contemplated to move to Portland, Oregon, to you know, run the employee benefit trust operations group for what at the time was U.S. Bank of Oregon and Washington. Um, and even when I was doing the interviews initially on the phone, it was more because I wanted to see if I was qualified, if they were interested in me. And I remember telling the recruiter when they wanted to fly me out that I couldn't let them spend that money because there was no way I was going to take that job. I'm not moving. Because you and weren't ready? To, because that I was actually my next question. Because, because, to I see didn't, if you were. because I didn't see myself, quite frankly, moving a, you know, further than a couple hours away from where I grew up. Okay. Just didn't really think about that. And I remember the recruiter saying, well, you don't know that. Until you come here and you talk to them in person and you see this, how do you know you won't want to do this? And so I, I kind of acquiesced, and I got on a plane, and I flew out there, and I spent a couple of days. And next thing I know, I'm like, I want this job. And was that your first time on a plane? No. No. Okay. No. <laughs> However, it was probably my fourth or fifth time on a plane. It wasn't that many. Um, and it still amazes me that, that I jumped at that opportunity. Um, and yet taking that kind of risk um, – made it much easier to take risks, additional risks along the way. And, yeah. and that's part of life. You know, you, um, you get out of it what you put into it. And if you're not willing to take a little risk, you're never going to reap the rewards. Do you think it's, it's listening to that, that soft, quiet voice that's, you know, you're scared. It's, mm -hmm. it's something different and new. But you can but you, do it. You can do it, yeah. Yeah, I firmly believe that if you want to do something, and you're willing to put the time and effort into it, you can accomplish anything you put your mind to. Yeah, we hear that a lot, but you ha there's a difference between being told and knowing, knowing, right? Having that knowing. You have to have that confidence in yourself. Right. Um, listen, we're going to take a quick break for our sponsors, and when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about how you landed at SEI and how you've consistently worked your way right up to the top. We'll be right back. This is Kristen Hilsley, financial advisor of the Foley Hilsley Group, with a big announcement. Last fall, I hosted a women's lifestyle conference to help the women who do it all take control of their finances. Now I'm excited to announce a new partnership with Women to Watch Media to help show women how to own their financial future. We'll have newsletter articles, blog posts, announcements of live events, and a lot more, all available at womentowatch.net and our own website, foleyhillsleygroup.com. 
I'm thrilled about this new partnership, and I look forward to being your resource for all things financial. Stay tuned to learn more or visit our website at FullyHillsleyGroup.com. The Foley Hillsley Group is affiliated with Robert W. Baird and Company, member SIPC. Log on to FoleyHillsleyGroup.com to learn more. That's F-O-L-E-Y-H-I-L-L-S-L-E-Y Group.com. Or call 610-238-6636. There are 365 days to schedule a mammogram. Today is as good as any. Holy Redeemer Breast Care makes it easy. We offer the latest technology like 3D mammography and automated breast ultrasound that help find cancers in dense breast tissue. Plus, our same-day readings mean same-day peace of mind. Make today the day you schedule a mammogram. It's easy to request an appointment online at holyredeemer.com slash mammogram. Since 1858, Mount St. Joseph Academy has been educating girls to be leaders, founders, and independent thinkers. Students are taught to be collaborative, courageous, compassionate, confident, and spiritual. In this student-centered environment, the young women are transformed by recognizing their own potential and are encouraged to use it to make a difference in the world. To learn more about Mount St. Joseph Academy, go to www.msjacad.org or call 215-233-3177. That's msjacad.org or 215-233-3177. I'm pleased to announce the opening of the region's newest, most innovative gynecology practice in the Philadelphia area, Montgomery Gynecology. Led by Dr. Hima Janogada in a welcoming boutique-style setting, she and her team are committed to providing the highest standard of cutting-edge care without losing the personal touch that is so very important in today's world. With a particular interest in minimally invasive surgical options, Dr. Hema completed advanced training in robotic surgery and is one of only two surgeons in Montgomery County who performs this highly specialized single-site robotic surgery. For more information on the opening of this exciting new practice in the convenient Plymouth Meeting location, go to www.montgomerygyn.com or call 215-444-3411. That's montgomerygyn.com or call 215-444-3411 to make an appointment today. Welcome back, everyone, to another week of Women to Watch here. Um, I'm joined, as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, by Sandy Ewing. And Sandy is the vice president, our senior vice president of SEI and head of the um, Trust 3000. And, um, again, if you're listening and you want to learn more about Women to Watch, make sure you check out our website at womentowatch.net, and that's women2watch.net. Um, so, first half of the show, we were learning all about the young Sandy and growing up and, you know, the things that you went through and working your way up the ladder, as they say. Tell me about the jump from uh, working at the bank in Oregon to SEI. How did that opportunity come about? So, um, the bank in Oregon was an SEI customer. And the last, I was there a total of seven years, and the last five years, I ran our trust systems group and had responsibility for our relationship with SEI. Um, It's kind of interesting because 
as I looked at career opportunities and possibilities at the bank and in the trust unit, there really wasn't kind of a next level that interested me all that much. And I was talking with uh, my relationship manager at SEI about some you know, projects we were trying to do um, as a bank and furthering our use of SEI's solutions and services. And I still remember him, he kind of joked and said, when are you going to come work for us? And I joked back and said, when are you going to make me an offer? And the, the next day, um, the, big offer. the head of the um, Western region at the time um, called and talked to me. And we, we spent probably six months kind of talking about um, a role in um, our headquarters here in Pennsylvania or in one of the regional offices, in particular San Francisco, since I was already on the West Coast and was going to be servicing West Coast clients. And we ultimately decided that it would be best um, if I had, uh, if I lived in Pennsylvania and was part of the corporate culture. And so that's how I ultimately made the decision to come here. Okay. So that was 1995, mm -hmm. right? And um, I guess I want to know, what, so that move, because you've been here ever since, um, do you feel it was strategic or do you feel it was inevitable because of your work ethic? Um, so when I joined SEI, it was into a role that we called a technical relationship manager role. And, you know, I. I knew exactly, or I had a vision of exactly what that role should be because I had been on the other side of the table for so long. And I came into that role with some very specific thoughts on how I could be successful um, and how I could help SEI and our clients be more successful. And, and frankly, I really felt that I was coming into a role that was the pinnacle of my career. I was so energized about the opportunity and that I was going to have clients up and down the West Coast. Actually, I had clients, um, you know, anything west of the Mississippi that was mid-sized was mine. I had clients in Alaska and San Diego and Utah. And were you traveling? Um, and, I, and I traveled yeah, every week. Um, you know, maybe one week a month I would spend in the office and kind of get things in order. Um, but, and, and, you know, even then technology was so different, it would take four hours for my email to load when I would dial up at the end of the day. Um, and, and now it happens in, in nanoseconds, and actually it don't, you don't even have to do that. I just look on my phone. Right. Um, but it, so when I made the decision, I don't know how strategic I thought it was from a career perspective. It was more I just knew I really wanted to do this job, and I wanted to be part of this company. Mm -hmm. And it was a very easy move because I knew you know, probably 100 people here from having been a client and, and coming to conferences and interacting with the team. So I, I felt like I was already kind of part of the family before I even got here. Yeah. Tell me about moments when you second-guess yourself. You know, we, we all have those moments where perhaps it's right before a big presentation or mm -hmm. having to make a decision that's important. Um, as a woman, t 
tell me how you um, move through those those kind of insecure moments. Um, well, I, I think everyone, both men and women, have moments when they're not a hundred percent sure what the best answer is. And you know, I've I absolutely have had moments in my past, and and probably not that distance past, where I found myself doing a T account where I put the benefits on one side and the potential challenges or obstacles on the other side. Um, I'm a firm believer that um, at some point you just need to make a decision. You need to gather facts, um, but you will never have 100% of the facts. And if you spend three months gathering facts, by the time you make a decision, half those facts have changed anyway. Mm -hmm. So I'm a firm believer in making the best decision based on the data that's available, but then going into the situation with eyes wide open and course correcting and adjusting as you learn new information or the information changes or you encounter obstacles along the way. Um, so for me, it's, it's about being willing to admit that um, oh, that's a little bit different than what I thought, so how are we going to adjust and react? Um, because, I mean, I guess that, I mean, you could say that second guessing. To me, that's just making sure that even if your initial decision wasn't perfect, mm -hmm. that you figure it out and you keep moving forward. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about STEM, the STEM field, which we talk about on the show quite often, um, trying to encourage young girls and women to pursue these fields, science, technology, engineering, math. Tell me first, why do you think the contributions of women in these fields are, will benefit us globally? What is it about women stepping into these, these fields that is going to um, have a positive impact? I think probably the biggest positive impact is just another perspective. So not necessarily a better perspective, but another view. Women view things differently. Men come at things differently. Mm -hmm. One isn't better or worse, but if you put those two views together, you should get to a stronger answer. And I think as a leader, one of the most important things that we can do is to recognize that we don't always have every answer, that we're not always going to be the smartest person in the room. And I would tell you most of the time I'm not, but I'm smart enough to know what I know and what I don't know mm -hmm. so that I pull other people's views and perspectives in before making a final decision. So I think women getting involved, sharing their ideas, being willing to, quite frankly, stub their toes along the way, because that's how you learn, too, just puts more insight into the overall process, which should make us both a stronger company and a stronger community and ideally a stronger world. Would you say that's part of your leadership style, to be collaborative and say, okay, gang, let's all get around the table and throw out some ideas? I work very hard at that. Um, so I, um, I believe it is. I hope the people I work with would say the same thing. Yeah. I, I firmly believe, and for the people in the room, this was our little mantra a couple of years ago, we are better together. 
And I firmly believe that, whether that's collaborating with other units in the company, collaborating with outside partners, collaborating with our clients. Our clients deal with issues every day. If we're going to provide them with solid solutions and quality services, we need to understand what works and what doesn't. Mm -hmm. So their viewpoint, their collaboration into the we're better together is critically important as well. Yeah. And plus, when you, when you do that, when you bring people into these conversations and they feel important, they work better for you, mm -hmm. right, when they feel mm -hmm. a part of it. Um, I love talking about aha moments, and I think um, all of us have them, and some of us have multiple, and some have one that change our trajectory. Um, is there an aha moment for you that... There have probably been dozens of them over the years. Um, you know, we were, we were talking earlier about um, perfection. A huge aha moment in my career was when I realized that I could not be a perfectionist at everything that I touched. Um, you know, another aha moment, and I realized this in the last five or six years, and yet... I think subconsciously I've known this for a long time, and it's something that I, I tell people coming into the workforce now as well. Um, as professionals, we and as parents, as 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 people, we encounter lots of different people in our professional and personal lives, and sometimes we see things that are very impressive and sometimes we see things that are very appalling. Mm -hmm. And each of us need to build out our own style. And for me, the aha moment was real, realizing that we should all mimic those traits in others that we respect and admire and promise ourselves to never do those things that appall us you know, those traits in others that, mm -hmm. that we don't like. And, and I think I, the aha moment um, was as a, as a mother when I saw another mother doing something that clearly was not working with her child and um, was clearly a behavior that I hope I never exhibit to anyone, right, <laughs> let alone yeah. my child. And as I watched that scenario, then I also started realizing that there were things that, other mothers did that really did work, and I copied those things. Um, and the same is true from a professional perspective. When I look back at the 35 years I've been in this industry, some of the people I learned the most from were people that I worked for that I learned what I did not want to do. Mm. So I, I worked for a woman for five years in the 80s who technically was brilliant and I learned so much from her about the business and the technology but she was a terrible leader she treated people terribly but I but I also learned how I did how I never wanted to treat people right so I think that was probably you know an aha moment that I saw along the way but it really resonated a few years ago do you feel as though at this point in your career you're settled in your self so that the decisions you're making are truly ones that, you know, feel right to you. 
Personally, yes. Mm -hmm. Professionally, I think I'm still my own worst critic, where I'm always going to question. And ultimately, I think that makes me a better leader because I don't just react. I spend some time thinking about, is this the best answer for the company? Um, so I think it's good to question. I, I think, you know, having said that, we need to be confident, and when we make a decision, we need to stick with it as well as adjust and course correct. Mm -hmm. um, but I think it's, if, if confidence moves too far to arrogance, um, where you're not asking yourself, how could I be better? What should I do mm -hmm. different to get better? Okay. Um, I think... I don't, I don't think we should ever stop learning and ever stop trying to improve ourselves. Mm -hmm. And part of that, at least for me, is saying, how could I have done that client call better? How could I have done that presentation better? Um, how could I have handled that employee situation better? Um, if we don't ask ourselves, how do we get better, we're, I don't think you're going to get better. Right. Um, one of my favorite questions is to ask people what they are afraid of. And when I ask that, I mean in this global economy in the world where we see every day, all day long, what's going on well outside of our community, um, it's scary, right? It's overwhelming. And so there's a lot of things that can keep us up at night that go beyond you know, our family and our company and our job. What's something that, that worries you um, when you think, this is a big question, big, heavy question. Mm -hmm. You know, the state of the world today and all of its uh, social issues and what's happening in politics. Is there something that at, at the forefront worries you? Yeah, I think um, what worries me is for as far as the human race has advanced technologically and where things are so much, you know, everyday comforts are so much easier than they were 100 years ago and we have tools that we didn't have 200 years ago. And yet human society has, its, has as many, perhaps more pockets of ugliness today as it did 2,000 years ago. Mm. And, you know, I, I, don't, I don't think there's, unfortunately, I, I don't see an, an easy way for any of us individually to fix that. But I hope and I pray that, um, you know, there are a lot of really good people in this world, kind, generous, caring people. Um, but what I worry about is, you know, how many... Factions of this world, for you know, lots of reasons, whether they're political or they're tied to poverty. Um, how how do we make this world a better place? Mm -hmm. um, because there are lots of atrocities that happen in this country and in, in other countries, and and sadly, I don't see that getting better. So that I do worry about that. The the world that our children will inherit from us. Yeah. That was a very deep question. Well, <laughs> you know, again, I think because we're so tied to um, what is happening, 
um, it, you cannot help but think about mm -hmm. it, right? And I guess we all can play our part in a very small way in in our interactions, whether it's one-on-one -on -one or, mm -hmm. or in our community, right? Mm -hmm. or, um, tell me, um, is there something that someone has said to you that has stayed with you? We talk about mentors all the time. How about a colleague or a family member? Or I mean, I know your mom. I know that, that message. Do a job well or not at all. Right. But how Perfection about... is the enemy of good enough. <laughs> um, There's too many perfectionists in yeah. this world, right? Um, you know, I, I think it, in many ways it, it really boils down to, you know, basic beliefs um, and upbringing around trying to do the right thing. Um, you know, I, I wake up every day and try very hard to, um, you know, put my corporate hat on and my client hat on and my leader hat on and try to make the best decisions, um, not only for SEI, um, but for my, my community and, and the world and my little piece of the world. Um, and I think all of that is tied back to, um, you know, where I started and um, the humble environment that I that I was a part of, and um, the fact that we were pushed to do things well um, and, and to care about what we do and who we work with and interact with. So, so I, I do think it all kind of comes back to some of those, those early lessons in life. Yeah, it's all time, you know, and that was, those life. chores were not glamorous chores, yeah. right? So sometimes I think kids need a little, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. a less glamorous, you know, um, lessons growing mm -hmm. up that, that help them as adults. Um, we just have a few minutes left. Yeah. Let's talk about something exciting that's happening at SEI. Um, tell me about, is there, is there a women's uh, network here at SEI? And just talk for a few minutes about yeah, what the um, initiatives are. So I should know off the top of my head, but I think we just celebrated the 10-year anniversary of the women's network. Um, okay. And there is a you know great group of women. There's probably 15 people that are part of the board and, and this small group community that drive events throughout the year, whether they are lunch and learns that are open to both you know, men and women across mm -hmm. the company, um, or um, you know, an annual um, symposium all-day event with outside speakers as well as internal speakers that come together, um, including you know, both SEI women and men, but also we invite people from the community to come in. Um, there's we also have a diversity network mm -hmm. at SEI. Um, you know, SEI, um, I've been here almost 22 years and, you know, worked for two banks before that. And, and although I enjoyed working for those banks when, when I was there, um, I love SEI. And it's the culture of SEI. And mm -hmm. it is a, it's a culture of care, a culture of helping uh, you know each other caring for our clients caring for our employees caring for our shareholders um, it's a great campus um, you know lots of, of young energetic talent and, and people that 
are committed um, both to this company um, and the success of our clients. Um, you know, so whether it's, it's through um, the Women's Network, um, the Diversity Network, or even, you know, this great space that we're in today. Mm -hmm. I wish the um, listeners could is, see where we are. This is the second week since we've opened the Idea Farm. And so for the listeners, um, SEI's campus um, is in Oaks, Pennsylvania, and it's rural farmland. Um, we've been here now 21 years, but the original property included a um, 18th century farmhouse mm -hmm. um, built, I believe, in 1740. Um, and for the first 20 years, we did nothing with the old house. It just kind of sat here and, and looked cute from the outside, but we had done nothing with it. And in the last year, we have completely renovated it into this very open, airy space um, with the, and the name Idea Farm is really at its core being. It's, it's a place to innovate, innovate with our clients, innovate um, amongst ourselves, innovate with our partner, um, and really encourage us to kind of think differently. Um, if, if you've had a chance to look at any of our campus, you know, we have no walls. There, right. there are some meeting rooms, but everyone sits out in the open, including our founder and CEO, Al West. Our, all of our furniture is, is on wheels so that we can easily um, move and repurpose ourselves into different teams based upon what's going on. And that, that's all part of the SEI culture, too. So it's, it's an exciting time to be at SEI, and it's, it's, um, it's great to be part of the leadership team. And you know what else I love? The first time I came here, I said, where's everybody going? Because everyone's milling around. <laughs> People are crisscrossing and going up and down the steps and just moving. And I think that's such a, you know, really for SEI, um, they were ahead of their time in the design of this mm -hmm. place and the open space idea and, and having a space that people feel good in as opposed to a cubicle with no windows. Right. It really does kind of, you know, um, add to the creativity, right? right? And the innovation. And, and ideally fosters the, the mantra that everybody's point of view, everybody's information matters, and we want to hear what everybody has to say. Yeah. And not having walls helps encourage that. Yeah, it opens it up. Yeah. Well, that's all the time we have for today. I thank you so much you. for joining me um, on Women to Watch and sharing your story in this beautiful space in front of these lovely people who I understand we're going to have a little Q&A at the end of the show. I'm looking forward to that. So thank you so much. Thank you, Susan. And that's it, everyone, for another week of Women to Watch. Um, please tune in next week and be sure to check out our website at womentowatch.net. That's women, the number two, watch.net. Feel free to clap. <laughs>